Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 21, verses 1 through 36. You can find that in your bulletin beginning on page 7 or in the Pew Bibles on page 930. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended... We departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Syria went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. The word of the Lord. What an involved passage. I figure I'll, in treating it, I'll have you out by three o'clock. Uh, so let's pray. Lord, as we come to this passage, uh, we thank you for it. We thank you that the Spirit Himself is the one who ensured that these would be recorded for the benefit of the church then, as they would read that and at the time it was written. and the centuries that followed all the way till now, that all of us would be, would benefit and grow and conform to the things that we see revealed here. Lord, give us grace that we will walk in your ways as a result of your word, that we will think your thoughts after you, that we will have the perspective of God himself, Lord, that's, that's given to us in your word. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, the real question is raised by uh, the title this morning, and that is, what, how are we submitting to God's mission in this world? How are we as a church submitting? And that's a purposeful word. We have to submit to that mission. We have to give ourselves to it. Many times we'll be called to sacrifice for it. Many times we'll live outside our comfort to do it. But that's, that's what's at stake, is submitting to God's mission in this world. And I've given you a little historical flow you can look at there just to show how the passage goes. But uh, we'll be looking at this question under three, three uh, headings, love, submission, and suffering, and unity, and slander. All of these things are critical as we think about our mission uh, that, that we will suffer, that we must maintain unity, that we must be ready to be slandered as a people in this world. So first, uh, love, submission, is suffering. When they finally get across the Mediterranean Sea, they get to Tyre, which is modern-day Lebanon, and they spend seven days there. And they hear, uh, Paul hears this message from the believers there, and the way we read it, it says they warned him against going to uh, Jerusalem. Now, if you tease this out, it probably means that he was warned about the sufferings in Jerusalem. And then the friends added, we don't think you should go. Why do I say that? Well, back in chapter 20, when Paul is talking to the elders, the Ephesian elders, uh, he said, all I know that's going to happen is the spirit every, in every church everywhere is telling me I'm going to suffer imprisonment and affliction when I get to Jerusalem. But he also says to them, but the spirit constrains me to go. So the same spirit constraining, constraining him to go is also the one warning him of what will happen when he gets there. 
So then, after spending the seven days in Tyre, they go down to Caesarea, which is in modern-day uh, Israel. And there, Agabus, a prophet, shows up, and he's more dramatic, right? He takes the belt, Paul's belt, it's a, like a, a long piece of cloth, ties his own hands and uh, feet, and says, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem. It's a way to make it graphic, to underscore uh, how... Uh, how important this is, how real this is uh, for Paul. And as a result of this, of course, Luke says, I and everybody there says, don't go, don't go. Now, this act of prophecy, while conforming, con- uh, confirming the seriousness of what's going to happen, it really sets in motion the very event that it foretells. I mean, it makes certain for Paul this is going to happen, but this also prepares him and strengthens him because, especially because he says, well, God's the one telling me to go. God's also the one telling me what's going to happen. God's in this the whole time. God is going to, excuse me, let me add this to where it's supposed to be. God is going to... uh, Bless me, he's blessing me now, and he's going to be with me then. So, wonderful act of, of this, these prophecies. And you can understand they're urging him not to go. We would have done the same thing. And you feel the drama and emotion when Paul says, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? One translation has it, While this weeping, you're breaking my heart, right? And actually, this word breaking, uh, we say break my heart, but in their language, this word means to pound something. It's used when women are washing clothes and they're pounding their clothes with rocks to clean them. And so Paul is saying, why are you crying? You're pounding my heart. You're beating me up inside, basically. But this all the more emphasizes his commitment and the Spirit's calling on his life because not only is he willing to go and suffer, he's willing to make them suffer as well. This makes it hard for Paul, but it still underscores that the Spirit is constraining him to go, even though there may be great suffering, perhaps even death. And throughout the history of the church, this has marked the people of God, being willing to go to places where they know they will not be safe. They know they will be endangered. They know the possibility of imprisonment, persecution, suffering, and even death. Most of you are familiar with probably the first one that comes to mind is is Jim Elliott, a young man only 27, maybe turned 28 when they went down to Ecuador uh, to try to reach the Huorani tribe, and they knew, because they had the reputation, they're violent and, and it's dangerous for any outsider to come to this tribe. Uh, in fact, their name in that language was called, in the language of Ecuador, uh, one of the languages, uh, Alcas, the Alcas Indians. So, and that means warriors. No, it means savages, okay? So they're just known. They're savage. They're dangerous. They're violent. Don't don't go there. Everybody would be telling them. And so they do several things at the end of 1955 when uh, their 
in the area and they're trying to pave the way for a visit. And even though they did this in January of 56, all five of the guys are killed on the beach. And of course, amazingly, his own wife at that time, Elizabeth Elliot, goes down to the Aka Indians herself and has success in bringing the gospel to them, knowing that she too could be killed. And in this situation, he was 28 years old, 28, his whole life before him. But for him, this is essential. These people need the gospel. That's what the church has always done. The gospel never would have gone anywhere if people hadn't been willing to die. You can read of Wycliffe missionaries at the early 20th century, uh, course, and they were going to areas that didn't even have a language written down. So they were rough areas that they were going to. They packed all their belongings in a coffin, knowing that they could die of cholera or dysentery or somebody could kill them. But they went undeterred. They went. And of course, for us, I want to first encourage you before challenging you, but the same spirit that constrained Paul to go to Jerusalem and to face the danger is the same spirit that has moved in the church for 2,000 years. And yes, it's the same spirit we have. And, and mustn't we pray, Lord, if this is your spirit, if this is how the spirit affects your people, then Lord, affect us in this way as a body. We're not in a dangerous situation yet. We, we may have a raised eyebrow or somebody may laugh at us or whatever, but oh Lord, give us grace that we will have this urgent, urgent desire to see others come to know the blessings to be had in Christ Jesus to realize their condition under judgment and, oh, Lord, long to bring the gospel. And for many of us, it starts simply with get to know the people around you. Invite them into your home. Befriend unbelievers. Taking those steps to, to whatever I may suffer in the midst of it, give me grace. And it's so encouraging in the midst of Paul about to go to Jerusalem to suffer that they're in Tyre. He'd only been in Tyre for seven days. And yet when they go to the beach, all the fam- the whole families are going out there. That's a touching scene to think. Who I mean, they're carrying babies, they're little ones, they're every age. And they're all there on the beach praying for Paul, knowing he is facing terrible things in the future. We know he is. And they lifted him up in prayer and were bonded to him. This had to be a bit of a shelter and shield for him in the midst of the rejection that he was about to receive in Jerusalem. And so we can constantly encourage one another. That's why if you take these steps together and then share your stories of what it was to meet someone or what it was to share the gospel, you see, you can get some momentum and you can get comfort in one another as we jointly all are moving out to share the gospel with people. That's exciting that you be sharing stories Sunday after Sunday or month after month among brothers and sisters of my experience in the gospel. 
The Holy Spirit is ours. We can do it by his grace. So love, submission, and suffering. But then love, submission, and unity. When he gets to Jerusalem, first, he reports what's happened, what happened with him and the Gentiles. And he, it says he said one after another just tells all of these fantastic stories of God's grace. And I love how it's put uh, the things that God has done among the Gentiles. You see, that's what's encouraging for us to engage in that kind of ministry more and more. It's what God wants to do. It's what God does through us. We can't do anything. We will affect nothing. But God is the one who has a mission. Jesus Christ has a mission in this world as Lord of the harvest. And as one wrote, true ministry for him must always be ministry by him. Right? No ministry for him unless he's the one doing it. Because he's the only one that can bring the word to bear in people's lives, that can manifest the love of Christ in and through us to draw others to himself. But then, excuse me, then the elders report to him about all these thousands that have come to Christ uh, in Jerusalem. And he says, but they are zealous for the law. Their burning desire to keep the law. And their concern that you have told Jews scattered around the Mediterranean, uh, scattered among Gentiles, to forsake the law of Moses. And that word is a serious word. It's the uh, Greek word from which we get apostasy, to abandon, to desert uh, Judaism. And Jewish writings would state that if someone does such a thing, they have no place in the world to come. If you discourage God's people, the Jews, they would say, uh, from keeping the law, no place for you in heaven, basically. And of course, what's happening here is Paul is simply facing the cultural consequences of his ministry among the Gentiles. But this ministry, we know, began with God himself and the Holy Spirit. In chapter 10 of Acts, the Holy Spirit has to bring a dramatic vision to Peter, animals, unclean animals being let down from heaven and saying, you can eat these, to convince him that when the gen, some Gentiles come uh, to see him, you can go and go into their house. First thing, he had to have a vision, Peter, to know it was okay for him to walk into a Gentile's house. And then he still thought, well, good, I'll preach the gospel and they'll be circumcised and they'll come into, you know, Judaism and then maybe they'll receive the Holy Spirit. But while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls on uncircumcised Gentiles. They belong to Jesus without being Jews. Shut my mouth. You know, that was just like a shocker to the whole band of them. So you can understand if apart from the spirit, how people, especially zealous for the law, might be thinking this is a compromise. We can't allow this. And the, the truth is 
that, of, uh, that Paul never opposed Jewish practice. He never opposed circumcision unless, as in Galatians, it became a means of being accepted by God. That is, you have Christ, but you better get circumcised because Christ isn't enough. That, that Paul opposed violently, right? Uh, well, not physically violently, but passionately, I should say. Uh, or if your uh, Jewish practice disallowed you to associate with Gentiles, no, okay? But if you want to hold a Jewish practice, fine. If you don't want to, fine. That's likely what he's talking about in Romans chapter 14. When he talks about some want to eat certain things, some don't, some keep days, some don't. He says, each one is free to do what he or she wants to do under his Lord. You have freedom on either side and each of you should honor the decisions of the other. And I find increasingly in all churches and in this church, it is difficult for people to allow each other to do that. We focus on things that are not central to the gospel, that are not part of our gospel mission, part of the doctrine of God. And we focus on political, cultural, many other things. And then we start opposing each other on either side. Instead of finding our unity and honoring one another and respecting the positions that each of us may have on particular things that don't matter about the gospel itself. Um, And so Paul was not, he did not say to Jewish people practicing these things, you can't do that anymore. In fact, Paul in Acts chapter 16 had Timothy circumcised. Timothy was a Gentile born of a Gentile father, he had him circumcised because he was going to be ministering in the synagogues. And Paul knew this will help his ministry among them. Paul himself says, when I'm with Jews, I act as Jews. When I'm with Gentiles, I act as Gentiles. First uh, Corinthians 9, because I don't want anything to stand in the way of the gospel. That's the essential thing, is the gospel. And I don't want anything to be come ahead of the gospel instead of the gospel to ha- to, so that people won't listen to the gospel. Because what I, th- this thing has nothing to do really with the gospel. And so it must not be forward, but the gospel must be this. Uh, in, in 18 of Acts, Paul himself took a vow to cut his hair. And of course, he's trying to get to Jerusalem at Pentecost to celebrate Pentecost. So he didn't oppose uh, Jewish practices just when those stood in the way of one's faith in Christ. They have to bear in mind another thing that's happening in these Gentile churches because they were largely Gentile in the, uh, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And that means, means that the, the Jews who were Christians were minorities in those churches. And naturally, their pressure might be to conform to the Gentile way of life and sometimes against their conscience. Um, But that was their pressure. And you can imagine how, by the time it filtered down through gossip and got back to Jerusalem, what was just a simple pressure and a freedom that everybody had became, he forbids them. He forbids them to do it. Pure slander. 
Clearly wrong, but that was the accusation. In addition, at this time, what would eventually bring the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD was already stirring. Jewish nationalism, hatred against Roman rule, uh, hatred really against Gentiles in general. And now Paul comes in, the missionary to the Gentiles. And basically, James and the elders are saying, they didn't say this as much, but it's like, it'd be better if you hadn't showed up. <laughs> You're a liability to the gospel because we're trying to reach these strict Jews with the gospel. We can't have this interfered with that. We need them to see that you honor Judaism, that you're not against uh, practicing these things. And of course, the great irony even there is that this mission is not anti-Jewish. It's the most pro-Jew thing you could have done because the God of the Jews had sent his own son who was a Jew and was the Messiah of the Jews for the whole world. The calling from the beginning, from the first call to Abraham was always go to the nations, go to the Gentiles. And so this was a pro-Jewish thing, not an anti-Jewish. But the sad thing is that they felt like their existence as Distinct Jews were being threatened by the influx of Gentiles. And one thing and the next happens, and Gentiles marry Jews. And before you know it, you've totally lost your Jewishness. You've totally lost your ethnic distinctness. And we've seen that crop up in America, haven't we? Not only in the South, but all over the United States. And when you read the literature, that Fear of losing our distinctness as a race is one of the chief reasons for uh, all that was done against blacks and others. And I read, I came across this quote in, in a commentary, and it says this, when ethnic survival in this life is the highest priority, one is bound to miss salvation. For eternity. If ethnic purity becomes foremost ahead of reaching people with the gospel, then let's beware we ourselves could be lost. So there is this love, submission, and uh, unity. So they have this plan. This plan that they would uh, have him join with these men who are in a Nazarite vow. And part of the Nazarite vow is cutting your hair and, and offering your hair as a burnt sacrifice. That's to show with your hair, I give myself completely up to you. Now, I know a lot of dads in the 60s would have loved to say, son, I think we're going out and making a sacrifice of your hair, right? Because <laughs> that's when long hair really hit the scene. Um, my father included, probably. Um, but what they were wanting Paul to do is to tie into this sacrifice um, and be the one who would pay for the offerings. But to do that, to be a part of that, Paul himself needed to be purified because he had been among the Gentiles and he needed a seven-day period of, of cleansing himself. So that's what all that's about. 
And he went the third day and it was fine. And then they gave uh, notice that they're coming on the seventh day and all this. I mean, when he comes on the seventh day, of course, we'll see. It, it was really, really bad. But the important thing to draw from this in terms of unity is first we see the church's submission and flexibility when they hear that the Spirit is moving Paul to come. They actually say uh, there in Caesarea, the Lord's will be done, which has echoes of Jesus in Gethsemane saying, your will be done. So they recognized it and they submitted to that. But here in Jerusalem, Paul is submitting to the concerns of the elders. He could have blown in there. He's the apostle Paul. What are you talking about? You know, you don't tell me what to do. I've had revelations nobody else has had, right? But Paul himself uh, submitted to them. And it shows the importance of our seeking unity, giving up our particulars to have unity as a body and to try to minister the gospel in whatever way is necessary in our cultural situation. And sometimes we'll be asked to do something that's really neutral in terms of God's law, but they're culturally driven and they're neutral, but they can help us minister the gospel. Because otherwise, we would present a static, you might say, in the message of the gospel. And we have to always be open to where, when we need to submit to one another and submit to the gospel's requirement that we give it uh, a clear line of sight for unbelievers. Uh, One statement I read says this, a truly free person is not in bondage to his or her freedom. That's a great statement. I'm free. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. Well, don't make an idol of your freedom or don't be in bondage to that freedom. As Paul says in Galatians 5, you are called to freedom, brothers. Yes, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to do what you want to do or to do what's comfortable to you, but through love serve one another. We are free in Christ so that we can serve one another however we have to and be flexible in our ministry of the gospel in our relationship to one another. So love, submission, and suffering, love, submission, and unity. And finally, love, submission, and and slander in these last passages. Now, just a little historical background. Uh, Looking this way, this is east, right, for you guys if you're looking at a map. So the temple was made up of four concentric rectangles, four courts. The inner court was the Holy of Holies, and the high priest went there once a year. Second court was the court of the priests. Third court, the court of the men. Kind of wince on that one, but that's what the Jews had. And then the fourth court is the court of the women. Now, that's regarded as temple proper. Outside of that was the court of the Gentiles, which is not considered the temple proper. And in between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, uh, court of the women, yeah, were these barriers, four and a half feet tall. We've recovered two, one in 1871, one in 1935. And they had Greek and Latin sayings on them. These two that they recovered had Greek. And basically it says this, if any foreigner non-Jew, 
crosses this barrier, even into the women's court, because that was considered a temple. Any person crosses into this barrier, you will be responsible for your ensuing death. In other words, you will be responsible for what's about to happen to you because you're going to die immediately. And their view was that when you desecrate the temple by being a foreigner in there, it stands desecrated and will only be removed, the impurity, when that person is killed. And they literally beat them to death in the court of the Gentiles. One Jewish writing says you beat their brains until their brains spill out. Okay, now, we're we're just saying that's the way it was, right? That's what happened to Paul. When they falsely accused him that he had brought Trophimus, the Gentile, or Trophimus, the Gentile, in there. They'd seen Paul with him in the streets of Jerusalem. They knew him because these were Asian Jews that had come uh, to celebrate the feast. They see them, and then when they see Paul in the temple, they jump to the wrong conclusion, a fatally deadly conclusion and slander that he was there desecrating the temple. And thanks be at this point to the Romans who came to the rescue. In the northwest corner of the court of the Gentiles stands this garrison, a tower. I got a thousand soldiers there. It looks like they brought about 200 at least to bear on this situation. Not to rescue Paul, because they probably assumed he's, he's guilty. And they didn't care if they drug him out. They gave them freedom. They gave the Jews freedom. You find somebody in there, even if it's a Roman citizen, you can drag them out and kill them. But because of the turmoil of the day, because of insurrection after insurrection that had been occurring already, they didn't want a whole riot to uh, take place. So they came down there to stop the riot. And all of this uh, from the move to Jerusalem, the predictions of suffering from people trying to say don't go to this kind of thing where the uh, Jews basically are handing him over to the Gentiles all has echoes of Jesus' own life. There's so much parallel. We don't have time to explore that, but uh, so much to remind us of Jesus' uh, trial. Now, this is a sad event because when it says there in the text the whole city was in an uproar. It suggests to us the, high, the idea that all of Jerusalem and therefore all of Israel is now finally rejecting the gospel. I mean, they had, killed, they had attacked Peter and John. They had attacked Stephen and killed him. They had attacked Jesus to kill him. And now Paul. And This is kind of the final turning point in their rejection of the gospel. Rejection of the good news of Christ and the mission to the Gentiles. They, as a whole, wanted no part of it, though there were thousands who believed in Christ in in Jerusalem. And this is the opposite of Pentecost, where uh, on that great day in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church in Jerusalem. And they announce it in tongues to all the people scattered uh, from around the Mediterranean basin who had come to the feast uh, of Pentecost again. Um, And they 
there was the establishment of the church, there's supposed to be, Isaiah 49, 6, a light to the Gentiles. There to be a house of prayer for the nations. And yet now it's being refused. And just over a decade, the city itself will be demolished by the Romans. Um, So Larkin writes in his commentary, failing to reach out with the gospel to those beyond is a dangerous thing. Failing to take the gospel, to believe it, to receive it, and then to move out to bring it to others. That's what the Jews refuse to do. And that's what we must do. And finally we say, I want to say, Paul's innocence was obvious in this whole thing. In fact, taking Trophimus in there when he was so concerned earlier for Timothy in the synagogues to be circumcised, it's the last thing, of course, Paul would have done. And he was trying to establish his Jewishness by being in the temple, right? He was in the temple for his own purification and he was accused of defiling the temple. He's arrested while doing the very opposite of the thing he's accused for. That's what can be maddening when the church is slandered by those outside the church. And you never know what kind of things may be raised, what kind of things will be said. The innocence of Paul is revealed in the next chapters as we'll continue to go through Acts. Um, Luke shows that both Jesus, the accusations against Jesus were groundless and the accusations against Paul are groundless. But in the chapters to come, it'll show how we're to react under persecution. That there'll be times where we can use the law legitimately and find freedom or release. Uh, Paul appeals to uh, Caesar to get out of a dangerous situation uh, at Caesarea later. Um, But also, Paul was submitting to the Roman justice and being calm. He had to wait two years in prison coming up. And we don't even know what he did in two years, but he was two years in prison just waiting for God's timing, waiting because he knew God rules all things and God works all things together and God will take care of him. So he didn't undercut the rule of law uh, but hope, hoped in the possibility that justice would play itself out while at the same time he did everything he could that was allowed by the law. So a, a tremendous example as we continue to go through Acts to see uh, Paul's approach to this situation. But for us, what a call uh, for us to love one another and support one another to love this lost world and submit to the glorious gospel mission that the Spirit will enable us to do as we trust him. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we, we thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We praise you that we belong to you, though we are sinners in and of ourselves. hopelessly lost, turned against you, and yet you came after us because of your mercy. Oh, Lord, that spirit that came after us while we were sinners, 
that heart of yours, O God, that wanted us for yourself when we didn't want you. We pray, O Lord, with some expectation. Because, O Lord Jesus, you're the one who gives, you have the spirit without measure. And you impart your spirit to us that we might have your heart, that we might have your mission, that we might be empowered by the spirit, even as these disciples were empowered by the spirit. Oh, Lord, give us grace. We must have grace because we're selfish. We're chicken. We are, we are carefree in regard to the lost. We're numb at times. Oh, Lord, give us grace that what was on Jesus' heart, what is on Jesus' heart, what is on the Spirit's heart uh, to reach the lost, that, Lord, it will be on our heart. Oh, Lord, give us your spirit that we may do your work and submit to your gospel mission. Amen.